Okay, welcome to Destination Radio Live. That uh, canned audience uh, <laughs> sound effects are great, isn't it? I'm your host, uh, David Abdimbleby. I'm joined by... I was going to say Grand Wizard, but we shouldn't go down that alley, should we? By Nathan Cush. <laughs> Special uh, cultural attaché, uh, Dr. Hugh Williams. And the leader of the Communist Party of Britain and friend of uh, Desolation Radio, Mr. Rob Griffiths. It's a bit different doing it live, Nathan. It? it is, yeah. Um, real time, like, you know, uh, audience interaction. Normally, I just go out of the room and, like, clap and stuff to make it sound a bit dull. But, got to wear clothes now as well. Yeah, yeah, that was a big turn off <laughs> for me. Of course. Yeah. Like, um, <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> Let's address the elephant in the room. Um, what are you wearing, eh? Uh, my Drew costume. It's a... Uh, I don't know who told you that, mate, but that's a, that's a wizard's costume. No, no, it's authentic druid costume. <laughs> so we were going to say, like, we we're going to do a gag about everything we say in this uh, live event is associated with and endorsed by the Ice Um <laughs> But because they've been, like, so offensive, like, this week, we are now, like, want to take this opportunity to formally distance ourselves from the Ice <laughs> Um And, yeah, we don't want anything to do with some of the things that have already been said. But, you know, it means that... No, even if we are offensive, they'll never top what they've has already been done. Like so, uh, uh, so we, w- the format is basically going to take the. It's going to be like the same as a, a regular episode of Desolation Radio, except you know, all sign disclaimers that you know don't tell anyone how bad we are at this and <laughs> how much we sort of mess up because we just edit that out in the normal process. But we'll do like a regular uh, episode for the first half, and then for the second half, basically we'll open it up, and it'll be like the people's question time, basically. With the and, battle royale element. And because, you know, we want to stay true to the question time format, at least five people in here have to be sort of conservative party councillors who've been sort of planning in here. So, uh, and if you raise your hands now, then I'll know just to ask you questions and, and no one else. All right. um, and so, right, yeah, so I mean, the, the point of this this talk today is is about, is the lessons from the Welsh Socialist Republican movement. And it's important, I think, because independence is back on the agenda in Wales, I'd say, in a, in a pretty big way. Obviously, we've got Yes Cymru, we're promoting um, the cause of independence across Wales and I think doing some great work. We've got Hugh in the Labour for Independence movement, you know, really confused people. Um, but, you know, also doing, uh, you know, sort of, I think, great work in promoting um, the cause of independence within the Labour Party. But what hasn't happened yet, unlike in Scotland, there hasn't really been a coherent socialist uh, movement for independence in Wales. Um, and obviously in Scotland, they had the Radical Independence Campaign, which sort of dragged the campaign for Scottish independence to the left. And of course, you know, when we start, th- a few of us have been thinking, you know, how, how would socialists go about organising and arguing for independence? It's really important to remember that back in the 70s and 80s, Rob Griffiths, Gareth Miles, and Tim Richards as well, um, a bunch of people have already, you know, sort of been there and done done this. And so it's important to reflect on what, what happened. I mean, not only is this a period of Welsh history, which is interesting because it's, it was, you know, people involved in extra parliamentary activism, you know, across party lines. Uh, it's, some, it's a period that should be better known in itself, but it's particularly important for those of us who are sort of socialists, not affiliated to any party, and who are pro-Welsh independence. So the Welsh, I mean, I'm probably going to look at Rob a bit when I sort of go through the, the history of this to just check I've got it right. Um, Rob's shaking his head. <laughs> no, you got it right. <laughs> but I mean, but, um, 
the Welsh Socialist Republican movement was formed mm. in, I believe, the late seventies um, or early eighties, and they've produced they produced, uh, I think, brilliant analysis of Wales's relationship to the British state. I mean, if you listen to our podcast, Socialism for the Welsh People, was that under the auspices of the Socialist Republican mm. movement? Robert was it, was turning to London also under that. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I read the like the founding statement this morning, and it's it's fantastic. So for those of us who are thinking about setting something up, it's good because we can just steal what they did really and just like just <laughs> rebadge it as ours. So it was formed in the eighties by Rob and Gareth and Tim Richards, and forged links with the Republican Socialist Movement in Ireland. Did sort of act, you know, proper activism, you know, marches. Um, and produce some really interesting stuff and then it sort of well i don't know if it was starting to peter out but eventually it sort of the movement was actually suppressed by the by the police and a bunch of people including robin and a few of his comrades you know actually got arrested uh, on charges which were eventually dropped and john osmond wrote um a book i believe called was it political political policing or police conspiracy police conspiracy um, and interestingly, I think, as far as I'm aware, that the police unit that were involved in fitting up the Welsh Socialist Republicans were later involved in the Cardiff Three case as well. Yeah, but, yeah. So you know, there's it, it's a whole shady episode in the history of South Wales Police. You know, because um, it was involved in sort of basically trying to marginalise Socialist Republicans. And but what's interesting today, we don't really have the Socialist Republican movement isn't really prominent. You've got Leanne Wood, who's a Socialist Republican. A few Cymru Gorch, I think, emerged out of the, the remnants of the Socialist Republican movement. They then merged with Forward Wales, John Marek's uh, party, but then they sort of died a death. So there isn't anyone really openly espousing the cause of Socialist <coughs> Republicanism at the moment, other than sort of within the party system. So Until now, it sounds like you're going to build up <laughs> yourself then. Um, so Rob, if you just, I guess, talk us through the foundation of the Welsh Socialist Republican movement. Well... The, the those those of us who were at the at the core of of that particular initiative, most of us had been in Plaid Cymru um, for the uh, the nineteen seventies. Um, in the case of Gareth Miles, of course, Gareth had been the chair of the Welsh Language Society in the sixties, at the height of its various campaigns, which involved hundreds of people being arrested, certainly a hundred or more going to prison for taking non-violent direct action. Believe it or not, I mean, you know, looking, looking, I'm a bit intimidated by how young a lot of you are. Um, you might not remember the time when all road signs were in English only. You know, even in West, Welsh-speaking parts of South West Wales, West Wales and North Wales, uh, all the signs were in English only. So there were militant campaigns, you know, to paint out the signs to, in the end to to saw them saw them down, dump them outside the Welsh office. So some some of those some of the founders of the of the Welsh Socialist Republican movement had come very much from that Welsh language society activism, where they'd obviously learned some lessons about the police and the courts and the legal system and the state. Uh, I hadn't been hugely involved. I played an unofficial part. I think I painted out every English language road sign within a sort of radius of two miles of where I lived, but but that wasn't part of any official campaign. Did you find your way home afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> Only if I hadn't gone to the pub afterwards. But um, so, but others of us, you know, had had been in 
um, very active in Plaid Cymru. I'd been in, employed full-time as a parliamentary research officer from 1974 to 79. And um, then we had a few other people um, from the Communist Party and the Labour Party who came to join us. I mean, don't forget the 70s. You know, we had the... Um, we, it began with a big upsurge of, of political activity, trade union militancy and so on. But then we'd elected uh, Labour governments in 1974. And after a couple of years of some quite good reforms and so on, then we saw you know, that government go the way of so many previous uh, Labour governments and since, um, and ended up implementing, simply implementing ruling class policies. So on top of that, we had had um, the rise of the, of the, of the nationalist movement, um, the militancy of the Welsh Language Society, but then the growth of Plaid Cymru, particularly in the industrial and working class areas and so on, in, in South Wales especially. And yet by the end of the 70s, all of that, all of that optimism uh, and all of that militancy was, was disintegrating. We had the... We had the we had the uh, 1979 um, referendum on uh, to to establish what would have been a very feeble Welsh Assembly, but plenty of people thought it would be better than nothing and would be a start. Um, but that was defeated. Uh, the people of Wales actually went out and voted against their own interests. Um, those that could be bothered to vote, a large percentage didn't bother at all. They weren't inspired by the kind of useless uh, Assembly that was on offer. So there was enormous disillusionment at the end of the, towards the end of the 1970s, and that was the context in which those of us in Plaid Cymru who'd been who'd been arguing for Plaid to take a decisive turn to the left, um, and to challenge the Labour Party, not not in any sectarian way, but by showing that that a Plaid Cymru of the left would actually engage in a kind of political activity, not just the electoral activity, but the campaigning activity that would show the real alternative to the Tories. Focus the, focus the political attack on the Tories, but show up Labour by example. I think that was the approach a lot of us had. Plaid was always happy to attack Labour, but it would attack it on any kind of opportunistic grounds that might come along, and rarely attack the Tories. Uh, our view was the other way around. No, you attack the Tories so that all these Labour supporters and all these working class electors can see that you are definitely anti-Tory. In fact, you're better at being anti-Tory than the Labour Party is. But then you also show by example that you're not the Labour Party. And, uh, you know, that was the basis on which, um, after trying to turn Plaid more decisively to the left, and not succeeding, to be honest, um, then after the 1979 referendum, although some of us started to think of this before then, we decided to float the idea of a new political movement. Um, not, just, not just made up of disillusioned Plaid Cymru members, but also, you know, we had established links, good, good uh, contacts with, with some Labour people, some communists, people who were, who were not aligned and so on. So that was the context in which we launched the Welsh Socialist Republican movement in about 1980, if I'm not mistaken. And um, yeah, initially, um, you know, we we had a we we seemed to strike the right kind of chord. Um, yes, there was disillusionment after 1979, after the referendum defeat and the election of a Tory government, but that also meant there was a fairly significant minority of people who wanted to know, in this awful situation, how are we going to fight back? 
You know, they wanted to fight back. Who, who was going to offer any kind of fight back? Uh, and along we came. And um, I mean, looking back on it, we you know, we did some pretty, we did some pretty sort of um, uh, outrageous things. And they certainly grabbed a, they grabbed a people's attention. You know, it was also the time of the steel strike uh, to save you know thousands of steel jobs. Uh, well, the leaders of the steel union thought it was all about pay, but in South Wales it was about jobs. And uh, you know, we we got onto those demonstrations. We had the Wales TUC declaring a Welsh general strike. So we were very much there, and the, the material we were producing was different. It was imaginative. It was an open letter from Margaret Thatcher to the people of Wales. Dear scum, <laughs> you know, and so on. And, uh, and of course, the, the miners and the steel workers loved it. They, they, they'd come back and say, can I have 50 copies to take down the club tonight, and things like this. Um, and uh, we organised all kinds of demonstrations and, and various things like that. Um, but... You know, I think we went so far and then found it difficult to go any further. I think we came up against, uh, I suppose, objective realities. I mean, there's that, you know, that hackneyed phrase that, that, uh, that Gramsci invented, you know, about um, pessimism of the intelligence, optimism of the will. You know, we had all the will in the world back then. We really did. Um, I, I think um, perhaps we should have had a bit more pessimism of the intelligence. We should have studied the, the objective factors to realise that, you know, we weren't going to create some kind of revolutionary situation within a very short space of time. Not even with a steel strike, you know, not even with um, holiday homes being burnt and then bombs starting to be planted at conservative clubs and, um, and uh, army recruitment offices. I mean, in many ways, it was a very exciting period, but there's a danger that you mistake that you know, for the real potential amongst the mass of ordinary working class people. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the things we overestimated. I mean, I don't want to put anybody off. Um, I wouldn't advise planting bombs, but I wouldn't want to put anybody off, you know, militant activity and new ideas. Rob's winking. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, if, you, if you're serious about wanting to change the whole political situation, you know, you do have to take into account the objective realities. And I don't really think, you know, we did anywhere near enough of that. I mean, we can go into more detail about various things and so on, but in the end, um, as I say, there were bombs being planted, there were holiday homes being burned. Undoubtedly, it's a matter of public record. Some of the people involved in that were people who'd been, you know, supporters, and in one or two cases, members of the Welsh Socialist Republic, Republican movement, we didn't fall over ourselves to go onto the mass media condemning any of this. Um, and, and, of course, that also drew the attention of the state, who needed to show that they were, that they were combating this problem in Wales, um, because it was getting a lot of publicity. And they had to show that they were serious about catching the people responsible. Well, of course, at the end of the day, they weren't so much concerned with catching the people responsible. They were concerned with showing they'd caught somebody. And we were obvious targets because of what we were saying and what we were doing. Uh, and in the end, yeah, there, were, there, were, there was a concerted, well, there were several concerted waves of arrests and interrogations and so on. And I think about 11 or 12 of us were charged with very serious offences. Uh, I was charged with, um, I was charged with helping somebody to evade arrest, knowing or believing them to be in possession of explosives. 
Uh, I was also charged with um, being involved in planting a bomb at a army either an army recruitment office or a conservative club. There we are. I can't even remember where I was. Um, <laughs> at at uh, uh, an army recruitment office, I think it was in Pontypridd, and charged with conspiracy to cause explosions. So you're talking of two life sentences and you know another ten or fifteen years on top. So there were very serious charges, and we had the conspiracy trial, eventually came to court in 1983. Um, there were 12 of us, but, but in the end it was split up into different cases for different reasons. I ended up in the biggest trial, and I think it still holds the record for being the longest criminal trial in Welsh history. Um, but, you know, you really can't, and this is an interesting lesson, you really cannot invent that much amount of evidence without making a mistake. I mean, the police really can't claim that they spoke to me and that I answered questions and that they filled up 600 pages with these interviews when they, when, you know, when they hadn't heard me say a word. And therefore, they had me down as saying all kinds of very, very strange things. Like, you know, yes, we want a Welsh Republic, just like France and the United States. <laughs> and, um, you know... <laughs> And, uh, you know, one of our barristers, I think it was Michael Mansfield, you know, said in the trial, he said, it, it's, um, to, to one of the police officers who'd fabricated this, he said, it's, uh, it's very unusual, is it not, for extreme left-wing revolutionaries to look up to the United States or some kind of... You know. So, you know, you, you could not invent that much evidence without making a lot of mistakes. I mean, a, another point I was supposed to have said, for example, you know, when when I'm being brilliantly boxed into a corner by these sharp detectives who'd actually never heard me say anything other than, I want to see my solicitor, I have nothing to say. That's all I said all weekend. Um, so they have me in the end, after they've boxed me into this corner, because they try and be subtle, but it's comic, really. But they have me saying, yes, I did take uh, David's lad to a safe house, and if what I did impeded his apprehension, so be it. <laughs> You know, now, I, honestly, I have never been a police officer. I've never been on a training course to be a police officer. Um, so the trial collapsed. You know, the trial, the trial, well, it didn't collapse, um, but you saw the police case falling apart in front of everybody. And, uh, well, we had a terrific drink with the jury, most of the jury afterwards. And, um, you know, and they said, we, we asked them, well, at what stage, you know, at what stage did you begin to have doubts? And they said, well, the very first time you showed, not me personally, but us collectively, the very first time that you showed that the police could not be telling the truth about a particular interview. And therefore, if we couldn't believe the police about that interview, how could we just automatically, in the absence of any other kind of evidence, how could we believe them on anything else? Um, so, in the end, we were acquitted. I mean, a couple of people who had been involved um, pleaded guilty. Some people pleaded guilty who hadn't been involved, but had been threatened with much more serious charges and so on. John Jenkins was one of those. Um, John, of course, had carried out the bombing campaign in the 1960s, um, and he'd, uh, he'd formed a fife and drum band, which was the Welsh Socialist Republicans' Welsh Martyrs commemoration band or something, and John had done that because that's what he'd been in the army. But he hadn't been involved in anything else. That's all he'd done was to train up all these young kids in a disused chapel in Splot, you know, to form this fife and drum band. 
And um, when the police arrested John, they basically said, look, given your record, nobody's going to believe you in court. So either you incriminate, you know, Rob Griffiths, Rod Barra, Tim Richards, and so on, or we're going to charge you with everything. And uh, he wouldn't do that. would have been the easy way out for him. Um, but in the end, they settled on a deal. He pleaded guilty to a couple of uh, minor charges. You know, but he hadn't been guilty of those charges at all. Um, that brings me to another point, if I might say, a, a one way in which I think, again, we, we didn't make a thorough enough analysis of the real situation. And I don't want to spread you know, pessimism and defeatism here, but you know, it, it, it does in the end. It is part of the explanation as to why the Welsh Socialist Republican movement didn't go any further. Um, and that is, you know, we also looked to what was happening in Ireland, you know, you, you had the, the militant Republican movement, you had the provisional IRA campaigns and so on. You had the big struggles over the hunger strikes, and we were very, very active in the streets on that. We had arrests. Some of us got arrested, put on trial for all of that as well. Solidarity action with the Irish Republican prisoners. But some of us, I think, in the end thought, well, you know, we could create some kind of amalgam here in Wales between you know, our tradition of work, mass working class struggle uh, and the Irish Republican tradition. I, by that, I don't mean running around planting bombs, but a lot of the things that went with it. So again, we identified very closely with what was happening in Ireland. As I say, we set up a fife and drum band at two big events um, in Abergele to commemorate the two martyrs of 1969 and in Llanelli, where we had a march jointly with the steel workers in defence of jobs. But the Fife and Drum Band turned up on both occasions in effectively paramilitary uniforms. You know, dark glasses, same colour shirts, berets, and so on. So it was our attack. We thought, you know, we could combine working class militancy and this Republican tradition. Um, but, you know, Wales is, not, Wales is not the six counties. And uh, although it got us loads more publicity... It also got us loads of attention from the police. I remember them calling specifically before the Sinesi march. They came to my house in Roth and uh, they wanted to know, are you, you know, we've seen this display you've put on in Abergele. I suppose you think you're all very clever and so on. You know, if you try and do the same in Sinesi, we're going to arrest you all at the beginning of the march. You know, so will you have a word with the organiser of the fife and drum band and tell them that any paramilitary style uniforms will... So, because I said, I have no idea who the organiser of the Fife and Drum Band actually is, you know. And uh, I remember one of the one of the Bent detectives involved in the subsequent cases that you talked about, Cardiff Three, and so on. I remember him turning to the senior detective and said, "Ah, there we are, Gov. That's that's uh, Robert Griffiths, the original Three Wise Monkeys. <laughs> Hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil." I always remember him saying that. Um, but the, 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 the band did go ahead as normal and so on. And of course it created, I mean, you can imagine the ordinary working class people of Llanelli, they must have thought they were in Derry or Belfast. You know, they saw this band, they saw this big demonstration. I'm afraid I think we probably got a little carried away with all of that. Um, you know, it, it, was, it really was in that sense a bit of a flash in the pan. I think we identified a role that a movement could play, but we probably overestimated, you know, the immediate possibilities and the real circumstances, you know. Um, and I'll finish just on, on this particular point. 
You see, when you have, for example, the Republican tradition in, in the north of Ireland, that's the product of 200 years of armed struggle, of clandestine activity, of outright confrontation with the British state. You know, and that, and in a sense, that produces the kind of habits, the kind of discipline, the kind of, you know, the kind of um, defiance, uh, the kind of solidity, you know, that's of a different kind to what we've generated in Wales through our working class struggle. And again, one of the features was that when, um, when we had the first wave of arrests with Operation Fire, most people withstood that. That wasn't a big problem. The police didn't, in the end, didn't get anything out of it except a lot of terrible publicity and me bawling through a megaphone outside Rumney Police Station for a fortnight. Um, but when we had the second wave of arrests that resulted in the serious charges and so on, you know, very quickly the movement fell apart. You know, a number of people signed confessions, a number of people incriminated other people. You know, then they tried to cover their own mistakes by claiming that other people were informers and not them. And the whole thing turned into a terrible mess. Now, you know, there are informers in the Republican movement. There always have been. But in Wales, we didn't have anything like the experience of those forms of struggle and the kind of discipline that has to go with them. You can't just create that in, in, in 18 months. Um, as I say, Wales is not the north of Ireland. And it's not going to be. Uh, and I think we were too late. We dabbled in it, you know, with the bands and all the rest of it. And um, we didn't realise, some of us, until it was too late, you know, that uh, we weren't going to replicate um, Irish conditions in Wales in any respect at all. You know, um, uh, what they have learned and the hardness that's been developed, and of course that can go in the wrong direction as well, in the north of Ireland, you know, we haven't got that in Wales, and there are, there are good things about that. Um, uh, you know, hopefully we can, we can win extensive measure of self-government and we can win <coughs> socialism, you know, without having to engage in some of the things that have been involved in the armed struggle in the north of Ireland. I mean, that's a matter of strategy and, and so on. So, yeah, I, I, was, I was a defendant in the end, and, um, but uh, along with most of the others, um, we, were, we were found not guilty. None of the police suffered any. I mean, they invented thousands, literally thousands of pages of interviews that didn't take place. But I don't think any single one of them ever paid any price whatsoever for engaging in that. Everybody knew they'd done it. My solicitor, by the way, was a Conservative. He later became a Conservative MP and a Conservative Welsh Assembly member and a Conservative Minister, Jonathan Evans. He was my solicitor because I, I, I asked Leo Absey and Cohen to provide somebody and they provided me, maybe Leo Absey had a sense of humour, they provided me <laughs> with, a, with a Conservative. But I have to say, you know, he was a fantastic solicitor. He was a fantastic solicitor. Because he, he was desperate to prove to me that the system, basically this is a good system, Rob, whatever all you socialists and extremists say, it's a good system, but we have a few rotten apples. So I'm going to fight the rotten apples. And by God, he did. He got up in the dock, he gave evidence against senior police officers. He said they'd lied in conversations with him and so on. I've always got to acknowledge, you know, um, the courage and the principle 
He knew the police had invented all this evidence. Loads of people knew they invented it, but they didn't face any consequence. I'm afraid for us, uh, I mean, yes, and I had a young family, it wasn't very nice, your children having to visit you in prison and so on, but some people lost their relatives. You know, some people had family members, their father dying with all the strain. You know, some people lost good jobs uh, and all along they were innocent. The evidence had just been manufactured. One of the interesting things, Rob, about um, you, the period where Welsh nationalists as well as socialists were sort of engaging in direct action um, and being arrested en masse, obviously that the direct action tradition has almost <coughs> completely disappeared. From Wales, especially post devolution, I think one of the, the one of the main impacts of devolution has been to co-opt people who would have previously been involved in direct action in the Welsh language movement, for example. Um, but what's disappeared with that is like an understanding of the nature of the police, an understanding of the nature of the state. I would say, in particular, on sort of the left in Wales, the police is kind of seen as like benign um, and just you know. Um, whereas I think history should te- history tells us that you know the police are the state. I think there's a bit of a and naivety in Wales at the moment about you know, what the nature of the British state is, is actually like. I bump into um, uh, former members of the Welsh Socialist Republican movement and former leading militant campaigners in the Welsh Language Society. I bump into them whenever I go into the BBC and do an interview and so on. And um, having said that, I mean, they could say about me, well, you know, you're pretty respectable these days, Rob. You're reviewing the papers on BBC Radio Cymru and things like that. And there's a sense in which that's true. I mean, at the same time, somebody has to fill those jobs in those positions. And there's no doubt about it. The political slant of a lot of the news and current affairs programmes in the Welsh language media is significantly more progressive and left of centre than the English language coverage. And not just about Wales, but about everything. So, you know, they've... Okay, they're no longer, you know, getting locked up for painting out road signs. But, you know, they, that's for somebody else. To, that's for other people to do, if you like. What, what now will happen is they'll get reasonably sympathetic coverage, you know, at least in the Welsh language um, media. Um, I mean, I, in a sense, I've gone all respectable. I'm just the General Secretary of the Communist Party. But, you know, I can assure you um, that, um, you know, I don't regard myself as having... Uh, embrace respectability. My my objective is still to overthrow the British state, and uh, you know, uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean sticking to all the rules and all the laws uh, in order to do that. Um, but we have yes, there is there is. I mean, I think it is it is a deficit in Wales that we don't have enough direct action. I mean, when we had the I'm just looking at Adam over there when we launched the People's Assembly in Cardiff. You know, there was a little bit of a revival of that. You know, we were going into banks and we were disrupting the business and we were, you know, calling meetings in the streets outside the shops and so on. Um, so, you know, there still are some signs of that. But really, given where we are in terms of this government and its policies and in terms of the international situation and so on, then I think, yeah, I think extra parliamentary campaigning and struggle really should be at a higher level. Uh, than it is. I mean, I would say one thing struck me recently. For example, I was driving through. I went up to Machantleth for the Latin American Solidarity Festival a, a couple of weekends ago. I couldn't believe as I was driving driving through Welsh-speaking areas uh, of West Wales that there are still loads of private and commercial signs on display in the English language only. 
How is that tolerated? I mean, what an insult. Most of the public sector signs are bilingual, but there are all these other signs in English only. I've got to admit, here and now, I don't think I'll get arrested for this. If I lived in that area, I would be out today. I would be out painting those green or possibly now red. You know, we tolerate. Why are we tolerating that? That wouldn't have been tolerated in the past. The Welsh Language Society would have been out there. People go to a Welsh-speaking area and they think they can just plaster English everywhere instead of bilingual signs, you know. So to what extent has devolution done that then? Has sort of sapped everything? Well, as there's no doubt about it. A lot of people who are, you know, very um, uh, bright, full of energy, full of initiative and so on, um, they can so easily be diverted, you know, into the, the media that we've created, the new political machinery that we've created, the new civil service machinery that's been created particularly in Cardiff, but also to some extent in some other parts of Wales and so on. Um, how can we reinvigorate that? As I say, we had an opportunity, and, and you know I've moved out of Cardiff now, but I know Adam and other comrades are still carrying on that activity. You know, the anti-austerity movement you know, has offered some possibilities. I think the anti-war movement is going to have to come back into its own. I mean, nobody can say that the that the that militarization and the prospect of war has receded in the last couple of years. So why haven't we got and shouldn't we be trying to build a, a, a much more active militant um, anti-war movement again? You know, there are the issues. There are, the, you know, uh, a lot of it is to do with organization um, because people will rally around if they see something happening. Who's going to take that first step? What are the forces that, that are available and can be brought together to do that? That is one of our weaknesses, in my view. Um, you know, I don't want to clash too violently with any anarchists here, for example, although I, I notice the anarchists are fairly organised. I, I remember I, I was on a train once coming back from a, from a meeting in London. Last train, a couple of fairly well-known anarchists got on at Newport. And they spent the whole journey, they didn't realise, they, they knew me, but they didn't realise I was sitting in front of them. They spent the whole journey complaining bitterly how unorganised the anarchists were in South East Wales. Um, you know, you have to have organisation. And, you know, I would still say, perhaps this is the appropriate place to say it or not, I would still say to a lot of people, look, you know, there are all sorts of good things going on and that you can be involved in and so on. But at the end of the day, we do need people on the left uh, in the Labour Party, in Plaid Cymru, in the Communist Party. It doesn't stop you from in, engaging in all kinds of activities as well. Um, but I think perhaps the balance has gone too far. There are, there are too many good activists who could be doing much more, um, you know, but, but uh, perhaps we're not organised effectively enough. I don't want to encourage too many of you to get sucked into endless rounds of ward meetings and, uh, you know, discussing the state of the local pavements or anything like that. Um, but nevertheless, you know, uh, the political parties still count for something. The trade unions still count for something. And again, that's, if you like, that's one of the lessons, boring though it might be. That, that is, for me, one of the lessons of the, um, of the Welsh Socialist Republican movement. We had terrific support, by the way, when we were really up against it, when we'd had the arrest, there were people in remand, some people were in prison on remand for a year. Um, the one political party, it wasn't a major part of my decision, but the one political party 
that officially attended our defence committee meetings, gave us publicity in their in their in their publications and so on. You know, was the Communist Party. Uh, I I was already on the way. I'd had good relations with the party for quite some time, and I was already and criticisms of it. But I was on the way to the Communist Party. Um, in fact, I was heading, beginning to head in that direction right at the very end of the Welsh Socialist Republican movement. So it, that's not what affected my decision to any, any great extent. It just confirmed my view. You know, so people are either serious about revolutionary change and are prepared, you know, to work for it and take risks for it, or they're not. Um, but but you know, if if it's not the Communist Party, you know, certainly there are things happening around the Labour Party. And when you can join Plaid Cymru and have a vote in the leadership election, if you like, um, but but we've still got the Welsh Language Society. We've still got the People's Assembly Against Austerity. We've still got the Stop the War Coalition. We've you know we've still got all these organisations, and I think we ought to see before we give up on them, and some of them need to be given up on in time, I dare say. But before we give up on them, you know, we ought to be trying to work in them and to uh, um, reinvigorate them where necessary. One of the interesting things, though, Robert, that strikes me about Welsh Socialist Republican movement is that you know you and Gareth, you know this uh, Gareth, you know from this Welsh language activist tradition, and you see today it's it seems to me like two different worlds. You know the Welsh language activist world, um, and then the parties, and there's not many direct action groups anymore. But I mean, you brought you managed to bring together essentially the socialist tradition and the Welsh language tradition. Mm. It seems to me in a way that hasn't been achieved or replicated. Since so, how you know how does that? How are we going to overcome that? Well, we did. Although you know, having said that, at the height of its activity and its militancy, you know, there were plenty. Understandably, I suppose there were plenty in the in the nationalist movement and in the Welsh Language Society who didn't want to be seen to be too close to us. Um, the the Welsh language activists had actually come with us. And effectively, it ceased to be that active in the Welsh language society. I mean, that's the truth of it. Um, and I have to say as well, it does seem to me that the, the sort of extra parliamentary campaigning on the Welsh language is, is at a fairly low ebb. Uh, and that's been the case for quite some time. You know, whether, whether and how it can be reinvigorated, I have to admit, you know, that's not been an area... That I've been able to, you know, do a lot on. I mean, as, as general secretary of the Communist Party, I'm, you know, I have a hundred and one things to do internationally and across Britain, as well as in Wales. But I will say, the Eisteddfod is an opportunity. Certainly has been this week, you know, to reconnect and so on. I mean, I've been involved in two excellent meetings, not called by the Communist Party, but I've been one of the speakers. There have been other speakers as well. We've had some really good political discussion. We distributed and sold, quick advertisement, um, the broadsheet is free, but the pamphlets are two quid each. But, you know, we've got rid of a lot of literature. That's all I've got left. We've got rid of a load of literature. We've made, I think, a lot of people think, because there are a lot of people who are a bit, a bit frustrated. You know, Wales is Wales is pretty quiescent at the moment, it's politically. The challenge that we face now, more so than back in the, the 80s, Simply because of the lag in terms of time that was happening since then, you know, the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, the way in which the political ideologies have become far more narrow, narrow for so for a lot of people, um, the younger generation in particular, 
just don't have the conceptual resources, the ideas that are, are there and part of the political dialogue. So, I mean, I agree entirely with what you're saying about something like this step of being an opportunity actually to bring these ideas to the fore and actually have debates that can engage people, re-engage people who perhaps lost interest. Uh, so I th for me, one of the challenges we do face, in addition to trying to bring people together who are in various radical traditions in, in Wales, is this idea of simply getting those ideas, mm. that discussion mm. out there. And um, I mean, I think it's difficult for Cymdeithas because of the situation with devolution. There's only so much they can do. And obviously now a lot of that has to focus on the lobbying Discuss, discussions with, a, with AM, so it's a it's a difficult balance for them in terms of maintaining that radical or militant approach, and also doing the hard mm -hmm. graft within the institutions, as it were. So it's yeah, there are there are challenges that I see at the moment that perhaps weren't true of where you were in the eighties, and it's mm -hmm. something we have to perhaps work out for ourselves. I think undoubtedly, you know, the arrival of the National Assembly, which, you know, I think on balance is a good thing, but the arrival of the National Assembly has rather tended to, you know, take the edge off a, off a lot of political campaigning and political protest. We haven't really made, for example, we haven't really made the, the Assembly itself a, a, a centre, a focal point of protest and mass mobilisation. Mm. I mean, I, I have to say I'm quite proud of the fact the first mass demonstration called outside the Welsh Assembly was called by a couple of communist trade union officials who quite deliberately targeted the Assembly and mobilised their members and we got a lot of people down there, you know, to lobby and protest and so on. I don't think we do enough of that. I mean, we're limited to some extent because of the limited powers of the Assembly. But we don't, you know, are we are we thinking enough in terms of not just going down there for a nice cup of tea with Carwin, you know, aren't we, uh, are we doing enough in terms of going down there with real protests and real demands and making, you know, a bit of a song and dance about it and so on? I, you know, I don't see much of that going on. Um, but there's no doubt at all that, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a little bit like a blanket descending on us. Um, but then the circumstances weren't that promising in the 70s, by the end of the 70s. Um, you know, so uh, it, it's uh, look events like this, the meeting I've just done, the other things that are going on around the Eisteddfod, the other things that are coming up, the Latin American festival in Mahanta. There are still things going on, but you know, all of us need perhaps to be seeing what we can do to make the connections and to join the dots a little bit more, um, and uh, not allow not allow preconceived ideas or past affiliations and so on to stand in the way of being in touch with each other uh, and organising together in the areas where we agree. I mean, I still meet people who want to argue with me about Hungary in 1956. You know, now, A, I was four years old, you know, <laughs> and, and B, I don't really think it has a great deal of relevance. I mean, all right, when we get to the point where we're on the verge of state power, you know, and we're having serious discussions then about political power and what it is and how you take it and what you do with it. Well, okay, Hungary 1956 may come into it, you know. Um, but I'm afraid there's a bit too much of that going on as well. We're allowing sectarianism, um, some, to, some of us, me probably as much as anybody in the past, but we're allowing sectarianism, sectarianism to stand in the way of, uh, of building broad initiatives that have room for lots of people with different views from different traditions. You know. I might be a bit provocative here, Robert. Just, mm. I mean, 
No, but it says uh, we have Rob Griffiths, until recently Plaid Cymru's research officer, was made redundant by the party in December. Uh, he insists that this he was victimised because of his left wing views um, and his criticism of party leadership. So you said about the story. recently, <laughs> nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, but he said forty years ago. He said very old website. You said about the tensions within Plaid Cymru at the moment, and yeah. you've mentioned mm. partisanship, which I think is very interesting. So I was wondering before we move on to the sort of question time element, if you could maybe give us your thoughts on what you think about the current trajectories that you've played and Labour in Wales um, and whether you think there's any scope to move beyond the partisanship, which for me has been quite crippling for the last like, 10 or so years. I mean, I was, I was employed full-time as Plaid's research officer, parliamentary research officer from 1974 to 79. Um, my left-wing views... I wasn't the only one by any means implied who had left-wing views. They they were more and more out into the open. Uh, some people were uncomfortable with that. Uh, and in the end, it was decided that the money um, that funded my post was no longer available. But strangely enough, money was suddenly popping up for what would have to be advertised as a quite different post. Um, now, I, a lot of people implied knew what was going on. And we did have about a year of 50-50 votes on the National Executive and the National Council as to whether my post should be, you know, finished with and whether the money couldn't be switched over and all the rest of it. And in the end, I think it was by one vote, the National Council decided to abolish my post. Well, there we are. You know, by then, um, I, I, you know, it, it's, it was never for me a question of trying to keep a job. It was always about the politics. I've lost other jobs because of political and trade union activities. You know, I regard that, you know, if, if you're a revolutionary, you can't go around whinging because you've lost a job, for goodness sake. You know, I, you, you want to overthrow the existing order and then you complain that somebody fights back. I mean, really, you know. So it was never, it was never about the job and it's never made me... In fact, some of those who were responsible, no names, no pastoral, I've met one or two of them this week and I've met some of them in the past and... There's no reason why we shouldn't be completely friendly. Uh, you know, there's still issues on which we, important issues we, we would agree on. So I've never allowed that to, you know, to colour what, what I actually say about it. But we did come to the conclusion that it wasn't going to be possible to turn Plaid Cymru into a thoroughgoing left-wing party. And looking back on it, maybe that, that wasn't the proper objective anyway. You know, do we need a party that is broadly left of centre, that stands for a measure of self-government, you know, which doesn't say to non-socialists, we're not going to have you in. Uh, I'm not even sure where I stand on that these days. But certainly at that time, we thought the need was for a, was for a thoroughgoing socialist party that stood for an independent Wales. And that's what we tried to, with others, to turn Plaid into. And our view in the end was that that is not possible. I think others came along afterwards, including Leanne, who I've worked with very closely on a whole number of campaigns. I've got a lot of time for, for Leanne. Um, I suspect she's in a very difficult position because I think she would like to see Plaid as a more consistently you know, left-wing le or left-of-centre party, not necessarily close to non-socialists. I don't think that would be a view. But I think she's wanted Plaid to be a more left-of-centre party possibly even a more campaigning party. Plaid has completely given up on extra-parliamentary campaigning. I mean, in the 70s, we went up to Birmingham. 
when we had a, a drought in Wales, and uh, we were told you can't, you know, you can't uh, use hose pipes, and you have to turn your water will be turned off for eight hours a day, and all the rest of it. Implied at that time, we got some uniforms as if we were collecting money for the Welsh Water Authority, and we went up to Birmingham and we knocked on all the doors, and we said we're here from the Welsh Water Authority. You are enjoying. Welsh water, there are no restrictions whatsoever on the use, and um, so we would like to collect a nominal charge, you know, for the... Now, we made careful note of all this, and the money was handed back at the end of the day, you know, but that got loads of publicity. We did it. Plaid doesn't do anything. Somebody turned up, by the way, one fella turned up, and he had about 150 quid on him, and we said, God, <laughs> go and pay it back, for goodness, it would be done for fraud. Um, but... You know, Plaid still had extra parliamentary campaigns that it conducted. That has now completely gone. So I, I honestly don't, I suspect Leanne is not going to be successful in, in any ambition she might still have of Plaid becoming a more consistently left-wing party. That's not to say she won't win the leadership election, but there are, you know, deep-rooted forces in Plaid, in its history, in its pattern of support and so on, that I think make that not only virtually impossible, but possibly not in the end in the interests of Plaid itself, you know. Uh, however, there are lots of, you know, there are lots of good people, lots of good left-wingers, lots of good anti-war people, you know, in Plaid Cymru, and we do work with them on campaigns and so on. The Labour Party is the Labour Party. You know, I don't think there's been, I don't think anybody's ever had any illusions um, about the Labour Party in Wales. I remember an old friend and comrade once saying, uh, after you know having to deal with the Labour Party for decades in uh, in in one of the South Wales valleys, he said, "Well, of course, Robert, what you've got to understand, for those of us who live right up close to them and so on, what you've got to understand is the Labour Party is not so much a political party; it's more a criminal conspiracy." <laughs> now, I think he was overstating it because you know, again, there are lots and lots of good people in the Labour Party. You know, there are. There are plenty of good people in the Labour Party. Um, but, you know, is it a party that is going to turn decisively to the left in Wales? Um, again, there are all sorts of historical and objective factors that I think will make that very, very difficult. Mark Drakeford, you know, is certainly left of centre. He's very good on a lot of questions. But I think even if Mark gets elected, you know, there, there will always be real limitations on what you can do with, within any of those political parties. So the question is, what initiatives can be built that gets the activists and the people on the left and the anti-imperialist and the anti-war elements, what initiatives can be built that bring them together? Um, I do remember on the... When was it? It was on the, it was on the um, eve of the... Um, that's right, it was when we had the Euro Summit in Cardiff. Uh, these were back in the days, by the way, when virtually anybody on the left understood that the European Union is a big business imperialist racket that has nothing whatsoever to do with the internationalism of workers and their families. Nowadays, there seem to be all kinds of illusions about it that absolutely don't make any sense whatsoever to me. But I remember when the Euro Summit was coming to Cardiff, and many of us on the left thought that we can't let it go without there being some kind of protest against what the European Union was doing, not only in Europe, but in Africa, 
spearheading privatization, austerity. This will come as news to some of you Guardian readers, if there are any. <laughs> you know, a thoroughly reactionary force, as it's always been. Um, so there were plenty of us on the left. Now, we had a public meeting. The Communist Party had a public meeting in Pontypris about the European Union and the, and the Euro Summit. All of a sudden, just before the start, there were about four or five quite leading Plaid Cymru activists turned up, and three or four quite leading Labour Party activists turned up. And uh, we knew them and just thought, well, that's, that's excellent, you know. At the end of the thing, they come up and said, oh, we've been in touch with each other. We all agree there needs to be a united left protest against the EU and its summit in Cardiff. The only problem is, if the Labour Party organises it, none of the Plaid people will turn up. And if the Plaid people organise it, none of the Labour Party people will turn up. So will the Communist Party do it, you know, um, via, again, you can't really do it in the name of the Communist Party, via the Morning Star. So, you know, we called a series of organising meetings, and in the end, some of you may have been there. We had a terrific march in Cardiff. We had a counter-conference in Cardiff. You know, we did everything we could in the time and the resources available to make it clear that this Euro Summit was not about the interests of ordinary people and so on. And in that way, we did find a way to bring those different elements together. Um, and I, I'm sure we'll find other ways. And even, uh, I'm sure, events like this will help as well, you know, to bring people together in the way that you've done today and people listening to the broadcast and so on. Right. We're now going to open up to, you know, the, the people's question time element. Um, because it is a Stedford, um, feel free to ask questions in Welsh. Um, and Rob and Hugh will answer them in Welsh, and then we'll just cut them out with the recording afterwards. Um, <laughs> no, they, they will be included. Um, so obviously, you know, we want to sort of normalise the, the sort of bilingualism and the use of the Welsh language. So, yeah, feel free. Just ideally, if you just put your hand up, and then I'll use it at the back, and then whatever, and then ask questions to you because know, Hugh is obviously representative of you know Labour for Independent Wales. Um, you can ask Hugh questions as well, but I mean, if you want to ask Rob to expand on or anything he's talked about, so please feel free. Don't be shy. You, sir. Oh, <laughs> uh, we should get away. We should get a mic. Yeah. Uh, so if, if you've got a question, you run down the table and then grab the mic. Oh, just yell at us. Yeah, just shout. <laughs> um, uh, just a little bit what you're saying, Rob, about sort of a... Um, uh, Trying to, trying to work between a military, so militarism and uh, a working class sort of movement. Uh, someone I know once told me that he thought the problem with the movement for Wales was the difference between a cultural Wales and an actual political Wales. So um, do you think maybe combining those forces in the future might be a good thing for to re-jig the movement? I'll go now. <laughs> Do you want to take a few others before? Yeah, well, okay, we'll do, we'll do, we'll do a bunch yeah. of questions then, and then Rob will answer them sort of consecutively. Rob will answer his favourite ones. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> Come on down! Uh, they leave it. Oh, beat him. All right. Oh, that uh, is going, never mind. Yeah, just uh, at some point, if you wanted to give your opinion on the applied leadership election, inevitable subject, that would be, I'd be interested to hear your views on it. That's all. Mm. I'll tell you what, you can just, you can just yell it. Ian? Right. I don't think the leads are long enough for everyone. I think the thought of Clwyd, you know, I'm a Hannes, better with the Neroith Degai Gunner. 
Um, o'r tu'n meddwl, mae'n y digon o'r diallturiaeth ymysg y symudiad presennol am yr hanes, a sut ydyn ni'n gallu trafod hanes ni, uh, hanes Cymru, hanes diwydiannol ag yn y blaen uh, yn y dyfodol. One of the best responses to Marcus, uh, we said on the podcast, like, don't engage in anti Welsh language trolls. But then some guy uh, responded to Marcus Stead and said, Hey, Marcus, it's so and so from the BBC. Um, just want to interview. Do you know Do you know how much you look like a testicle? Um, <laughs> so if you're, if you're going to respond like that, then it's probably useful. Um, don't know where his flat is, and obviously we wouldn't endorse any. Uh, uh, <laughs> Any uh, sort of uh, mobs or anything like that. Um, any other any other questions? We can have more after this. Uh, Rob, if you want to start then with um, these three. Yeah, I, I um, I'm not quite. Sh- I'm not sure quite how sharp this any differentiation is between cultural Wales and political Wales. There's always been a large element of Welsh language culture and any other kind of culture involved in sort of, you know, literature, poetry, um, the arts and so on, that's been, you know, relatively non-political. I I mean, I must say, you know, I do regard, and not just in the Welsh context, I do regard the cultural front, you know, as a very important front of of the political struggle. And certainly that's been the tradition of the Communist Party, not just in in uh, in Wales and Britain, but internationally, I mean, many of the great poets of the world. You, you go to Greece or France or Chile or whatever, and say who in Turkey and, and India, who are your great poets uh, of of the twentieth century, and uh, half of them at least will be communists. Um, um, so, firstly, there shouldn't be, in my view, except for those who want there to be, and you know they're free to do that. But there shouldn't be a sort of sharp line between um, uh, cultural Wales and political Wales, between culture and politics. Um, you know, there, there are those who want to engage in cultural activities in an entirely non-political way. That's up to them. Um, you know, that I, I, I think sometimes that turns into a fair bit of uh, self-indulgence. What I would say, and, and it's actually been confirmed by my experience at the Eisteddfod this week, you know, within Welsh language culture, there is a fairly, in, in recent decades, there's a fairly rich political uh, tradition as well. Um, I, you know, again, I do remember how things have changed, I hope, for the better. You know, in the 1970s, there were plenty of people on the left who thought that the Welsh language was an utterly reactionary phenomenon, and the sooner it died out, the better, and why are we wasting money you know, on Welsh language road signs and Welsh language education, it just divides people and so on. That was quite a widespread attitude on the left amongst activists in Wales. One of the things that attracted me to the Communist Party is that was that was one of the few places on the left that did not go in for that at all. All the Welsh-speaking miners we had from the Neath and Swansea Valleys and so on made sure of that. Um, but that was quite widespread and of course largely it's based on ignorance. Of course Welsh nationalist politics, sometimes of a not particularly progressive kind, have also been quite prominent from time to time in Welsh language culture. But there's always been a left and progressive tradition. And I'd say, if anything, that left and progressive tradition is is probably a little stronger now than it's been for a long time. 
So, you know, I would say um, anti-Welsh language stuff, I, I think, is far more divisive than some of the sillier and more extreme things that come from, you know, Welsh language campaigners. I mean, don't forget, you know, people who care about the Welsh language, who are campaigning for it and so on, you know, it is a language under threat and has been. Uh, it's on the defensive. It's still on the defensive. And sometimes people on the defensive are going to come up with things that perhaps are a little bit, you know, overreactive and so on. But by and large, I think Welsh language culture and the Welsh language scene, by and large, I think has a fairly good progressive content. Possibly more so. I'm not an expert on uh, English language culture, especially anything aged under, sort of under the age of, you know, 40 or something. But, you know, it's certainly what I see of Welsh language culture is quite progressive. Um, and I think that's something to be worked with and supported and developed and so on. Um, the Applied Leadership Contest, well, I was reviewing the Sunday papers um, on Radio Cymru last Sunday, and uh, we were asked to look up the websites and blog sites of the three candidates that had been declared at that time, Rena Yorworth, um, Adam Price, and Leanne Wood. And um, I must say, it, you know, that's a pretty dispiriting exercise you know um, uh, as I say I have a lot of time for Leanne but what she has said so far is pretty vapid stuff I mean it really does not add up to anything significant um, uh, the only thing is I think the other candidates are possibly worse um, Rina Bjorworth actually had some policy in you know in his material including some quite good policies but at the end of the day, I suspect he's one of those that would be prepared under certain circumstances to enter into a coalition with the Tories. Now, talking about a knowledge of Welsh history, how anybody thinks that that would do anything other than enormous damage to Plaid Cymru, that it would become known in the future as the party that went into coalition with the Tories. I mean, in Wales, that is toxic, and still is, in my view, I suspect, toxic. Um, Adam Price, I suspect, from what he said so far, would also be amenable, possibly under some circumstances. I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting him. I'm not doing that deliberately. But that's what I gathered from his material. Uh, I mean, his material said virtually nothing else. Just sort of gimmicky, empty slogans and so on. So, you know, if, if I were a Plaid member, yeah, I, 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 I'm sure I would be voting for Leanne. But then I also think she's in a very, very difficult position. Um, and as I say, the, the, the forces of conservatism with a small C implied, I think she's found that they're much more powerful and, and um, better entrenched than she might have suspected. Um, so I think the whole contest, I'm not sure that Plaid is going to gain very much out of it at all, quite honestly. I mean, I know that some of the candidates are saying we should be, you know, seizing the imagination of the Welsh people and so on. Well, I'm afraid, you know, I'd only just got up and I wanted to go back to sleep on Sunday, <laughs> you know, at seven o'clock on Sunday morning. I mean, really, there's nothing in there to enthuse anybody. And what, what, what was there that was worth reading was only sort of the minor, you know, policy wonk inside me that thought, well, there's a couple of policy ideas from Renap Bjorworth that, you know, should be thought about and then, of course, utterly rejected. So, <laughs> um, so that's my view. I, I really don't see how Plaid is going to get a great deal out of it. 
And I think the two candidates who are challenging Leanne, I'd have to say, you know, it's difficult to see what the rationale would be unless they are so unhappy with her leadership. The, 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 look, I, I was quite surprised. I mean, I was surprised, first of all, when Dan said, oh, Rob, come along and we'll try and get Gareth Miles as well. Gareth's not been too well recently, but he's in the Ice Desert. Um, but we'll try and get you both to come along and talk about the Welsh Socialist Republican movement and the 1980s and so on. I must say, I was, uh, I was a little bit taken aback. I mean, I'd done a previous interview about the Communist Party and about, you know, history, working class history and so on. I mean, I did, really didn't think there would be enough interest. You know, I was even more surprised when I walked into the room just now and saw all of you sitting here. Uh, we were as well. I mean, haven't you got anything? <laughs> yeah, haven't you got anything better to do? I mean, you know, I, I no, I really did not think that there would be, you know, that much interest as such. And at the same time, yes, of course, as as somebody who used to lecture in 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 working class history, uh, and still writes books about working class history and so on, I do believe that the study of history is tremendously important on a number of levels. You know, there are lessons to be learned from history. No doubt at all about that in my mind. Although one should always remember you're not operating in the same set of conditions, you know, the, as the conditions you're reading about. Um, and so, the le you know, the conditions aren't necessarily the same. The lessons may not be directly applicable either. But nevertheless, I think by and large, the study of history is very important. Knowledge of history. Uh, it's been particularly important here in Wales, where we haven't had our own state, we haven't had our own propaganda system uh, to teach people about the history, to enable people to analyse it and draw lessons from it and so on. You know, when I went to school, God, we're going back into ancient history now. When I went to school, um, I passed my 11 plus, unlike most of my mates in Clan Romney. But when I went to school, we didn't learn, we didn't do Welsh history. Our history in Cardiff High School was English history. And the student teacher came in for six weeks and we did a bit of Welsh history. But our main history teacher, he only ever referred to Wales when he was talking about England or Britain. And he'd put a map up on the board uh, and, he'd put, and he'd, he'd do a little bit sticking out. And he'd say, oh, and, and that's Wales where all the wild men used to live. You know, I mean, how insulting is that? So I think it's encouraging. There has been a resurgence. In the, in the writing and studying and discussion of Welsh history. I'm not quite sure, unless you're thinking of launching a new Welsh Socialist Republican movement, Mark II, and I would caution against it, quite frankly, in current circumstances, I think there are other things that we need to be doing. But, you know, if you are, then, of course, studying and learning the lessons from the 1980s would be very important. But I suspect if you were to draw the right conclusions, you wouldn't be doing it. Yeah, just to note, really, is interesting in particular what you're saying about the need for re-engaging with our history. And from a Labour Party perspective, I'm looking at some of the wonderful pamphlets here you've got. And one of them is, of course, Profoid Socialite Abarth Guthravel, a pamphlet on uh, Nicholas Aglais, T. Nicholas. And, of course, you know, early in his political career, as it were, he was part of a Labour Party at the turn of the 20th century when... There's all sorts of possibilities and, um, mm. you know, eventually it went in one particular direction. But uh, one text, I think, or book of interest is by Martin Wright, who's discussed the different Welsh labour traditions. And there is a sense in which he suggests that, you know, a figure like T. Nicholas was part of this 
more independent-minded Welsh tradition that was also connected to the Welsh language. And so I think for people across the spectrum, there's a need to re-engage with some of these figures and think, well, you know, history in some sense does repeat itself. There's so many lessons to learn. And actually in pushing forward with new movements, there are always, always links to the past. And I think particularly with regard to Cymdeithos, the Welsh Language Society, what you're saying about perhaps the need for people on the left in Wales who are unaware of that history of militancy need to do is to understand that, to engage with it. And I think also from the point of view of people in Cymdeithos, they perhaps need to see the challenges that they're facing within the broader spectrum of you know class politics, the effects of neoliberalism, which have such awful um, consequences, not just for you know, rural populations in Gwynedd and West Wales, but also obviously in, in South Wales, the old coalfields. These are all interconnected. So, sorry, I thought I'd switch <laughs> it off. Sorry. Perhaps it's time for me to stop. Now. <laughs> no, no, sorry, I'm sorry. But, but I think that, that point that, that you're making about the need to interconnect, the need for people just to open their minds a little bit about the different various movements that are here in Wales at the moment, and all those points of connection that can bring people together. And maybe you're right, maybe what's not, what is not needed is a new republic socialist movement, but something in some form that can bring these various parties together and actually say, well, look, there's a common enemy, there are common interests that we can actually, you know, we can bring ourselves together around those, those issues. I'll pay you afterwards, uh, <laughs> as agreed, but... Um, you know, one of the things that we're involved in, I mean, the Nicol T. Nicholas, for those who don't know, unfortunately, that, that's the founding pamphlet of, of the Nicholas Society, and uh, we will translate it. There'll be another pamphlet out shortly based on the lecture I did earlier today that will be bilingual. But what a remarkable figure. Mm. If you want somebody who's going to inspire you, yeah. who's going to make you feel that despite the obstacles and despite, you know, you've got to fight, you can fight, you've got to fight. Um, it's T. Nicholas. I mean, what a wonderful, wonderful character. Another was Esso Davis, yeah. the, the miners' leader and MP for Merthyr Tydfil, who I wrote the biography of. I've discovered loads of new papers, MI5 and MI6 records about him, as I have about Nicholas, you know. And again, these are, you know, we need that inspiration from time to time. People need it. And um, I think we've got to get this stuff out. He holds the world record, by the way. S.O. Davis, for the number of times to be expelled from the Parliamentary Labour Party. <laughs> Five times. Not even Corbyn could match that, or Dennis Skinner. So, you know, we've produced these people in, in Wales, but of course it's not about just about great individuals. They were able to play that role because of the movement that they helped to build and that they were based on and, and that backed them up and so on. But uh, Nicholas was an absolutely, um, you know, he was an absolutely remarkable figure. He was around... He edited the Welsh language columns in Keir Hardy's paper in Merthyr in, in, uh, on the eve of the First World War. And um, we had the investiture in 1911, and he poured scorn on it. He was a Republican through and through. Um, and he was still around in 1969 when we had the other investiture. And he wrote a fantastic poem talking about Carnarvon Castle being turned into a pigsty for the day and so on, you know. This is great fighting stuff. And it reminds us, you know, of what, you know, what first brought us into any kind of protest movement and political activity and so on. But we've got, um, uh, together we've been approached by some Labour friends and so on. 
Um, we're going to have a big conference, we hope, or a fairly big meeting in Merthyr Tydfil, first Saturday in December, and we're going to be looking at um, which way forward for the left in Wales, and it will be to a view to trying to reinvigorate campaigning and political activity in Wales, contributing to that. We're not the only people who do it, but you know, how can we contribute to reinvigorating political struggle in Wales in the course of next year? There's so many big things coming up. We you know we're still in the middle of the whole EU crisis. Um, we may well have a ch the possibility of a change of government. You know, we've got a we've got a I'd say a lunatic in the in the White House. Um, that's probably that's probably not fair because we would have got one whoever won the last uh, presidential election. You know, um, but it's clearly a very dangerous position internationally in a whole number of ways. So we are with our Labour friends, with our Plaid friends, with people in no political party, with our trade union contacts. We're really looking to bring people together to discuss what concrete initiatives can we take next year that will build left unity, draw people, more people into political activity and so on. We're not going to know all the answers. It's just going to be a contribution. But I think it's one that certainly the Communist Party is quite well, pla well placed to make because we do have friends across all these different movements and parties of the left and so on. And that's always been an important part of our work as far as we're concerned. Right, unless has anyone else got any more questions? Okay, just to sum up, I mean, if you look around the room, I mean, you know, we've got people from Plaid, um, the leader of the Communist Party, people from the Labour Party, non-affiliated leftists, anarchists. And, you know, we're not, we're not that bad, are we? We get on all right. Like, uh, <laughs> so it's interesting to sort of think about the various traditions, how we could sort of maybe think about what brings us together, especially what Rob said. We're, we're at a particular juncture in history now where it's really urgent. We're facing, you know, the rise of the far right. We're facing international instability, you know, climate change, you know, <clears throat> chaos. It's not stuff that we can can't mess around. We can't just dawdle and drag our feet on these things. We have to sort of think of ways to act together. Um, so that's it, guys. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, remember, remember as well. So if you want to buy uh, pa some amazing pamphlets by the Communist Party, you can. Um, We've also got T-shirts at the back if you want to buy them. Um, I think we've got enough stickers for everyone. Um, yeah, maybe people wearing T-shirts. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but if not, but if not, we've got we've got we've got stickers you can just have as well. Um, but hopefully we'll be putting on. I mean, this has been great. So I mean, really, really grateful for you for turning up. Um, did everyone find the building okay? I know it's a bit hard to find. Um, but yeah, really, really appreciate it. Because like I said, we we thought it's just that. I thought it's just gonna be my mum and dad and. Um, uh, <laughs> Which would be fantastic, but you know, just getting. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was, it's been fantastic to see you, see you all here and meet you all, and just just meet each other. You know, if you don't know people now, just it's a good chance to just chat to people and say hello, and then the next time we meet and we, we have um, events, but hopefully we'll see each other at other protests and activate you know activism. Um, you know, Adams you know, runs a people's assembly. Adam runs the next people's assembly meeting. Sir. When is a pe people's assembly meeting coming up soon? Take a bit of a break. It's September. Bottom is like a one-man sort of direct action campaigning sort of whirlwind in Cardiff. And Adam recently was uh, arrested during the protest against the arms fair in Cardiff, um, which is an incredibly principled stance. So we're all grateful for him for sort of taking that because there wasn't many. On know, behalf of us all. On behalf of us all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know that's the sort of 
I guess this is the sort of thing that we want to be getting involved in, not necessarily getting arrested, but, you know, there's an arms fair in Cardiff and, and no one's batting an eyelid, you know, no one from Plyde is saying anything, no one from the Labour Party and they're saying anything. And, you know, and, and, and a school bus in in Yemen got um, got bombed the other day, or today, you know, 29 kids. I mean, just the, the thought of that is just... And, and the Saudis are using planes and arms you know, coming from you know, your know, BAE systems, the you know, the British military are over there advising them, and these are showing the, the, their wares in Cardiff, and no one gives a shit. Um, and so if we can start going to these things and and, and coming together as as a group, you know, regardless of whether it's played, you know, Communist Party or Labour, I mean, that would be a fantastic start. So, all right, thanks again, guys. We'll see you all soon. Yeah. Today on Ben, mothers and runaway daughters reunited by their hatred of Homer Simpson, and here's your host. Gentle I just have one thing to say. Let's have less Homer Simpsons and more money for public schools. Ben, I have a question. No, Ben, no! no.